The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. In the past 20 years, Nassim Haramein has directed research teams of physicists, electrical engineers, mathematicians and other scientists. He's founded a non-profit organization, the Resonance Project, where, as the director of research, he continues exploring unification principles and their implications in our world today. The foundation is actively developing a research park on the island of Hawaii, where science sustainability and green technology come together. His lifelong journey into the geometry of space-time has led to a coherent understanding of the fundamental structure of our universe. He joins me today on In Discussion in this two-part series. Nassim Haramein, welcome back to In Discussion for this second program in what I hope to be a very long series with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. We began in the first program, Nassim, with your early life, with the way that you personally evolved, and those initial theories, which were supported, of course, well with the immersion in nature and their valuable wisdoms and philosophies, and then continued in the area of space, which no doubt will expand into space-time at some stage here. In those early days, however, you were focused or perhaps restricted to the notion of space. Can we, before we continue, explore with some further detail that space that you reference? Uh, Yeah, well, you know, uh, as I was saying yesterday uh, at the end of the program is that, you know, it became apparent to me, and you you know how you were saying that my childhood seemed like dreamlike, um, I, I, it became apparent to me uh, from my early experiences that space might not be empty, that the space between things may not be empty. And um, that, uh, you know, when I realized later on that the atomic world, the real, what we call the real world around us, the, the you know, the the tables, the chairs, everything around you, your own body, 
is made out of atoms that are made out of 99.999999% space, became clear to me that maybe we had things a little bit confused, a little bit reversed, that, that maybe, just maybe, the material world of our reality is actually only a function of the space itself, that maybe space is, it has a substance, it has energy in it, it has structure, and when it fluctuates in a certain way, it produces the effect that we see as matter. And uh, that, you know, um, led me to uh, very different views of physics. And I started to think about it that way, and I started to research and, you know, I was uh, studying a lot of physics, and I started to research if there was evidence that space was not empty. In your later theories, you visit the linear model from the larger domain, such as the, the galaxy, the universe, the solar system, uh, the Earth, uh, down to the human being, and further into the cellular structure. And you discover an area less understood, I'm thinking by the scientific community, into the biological area, and find geographical coincidences, um, similar geometry in that space that you talked to earlier. Can you expand on that, speaking also to the infinities, not only moving in one direction to the larger object, but also, as you discuss in your DVDs, in the other direction towards micro-size objects? Yes. So, so when I started to think that space was an empty and I was full, you know, it became apparent to me that if the space, um, you know, if, if matter does not define space, but matter is defined by space, it, it became clear to me that um, the space must have some fundamental geometric uh, foundation, that if it's the medium that connects all things, um, it must have some fundamental rules of organization, and uh, I started very quickly to, uh, to explore that possibility, to explore these rules, and part of it was to write scaling laws with my co-author, uh, Dr. Rauscher, um, and, and publish those uh, in scientific papers showing that there was evidence of organizations at all scales, meaning that there's not just evidence of organization uh, at the scale of biology, where we see all around us, uh, you know, an incredible amount of self-organizing systems that all seem to have this fractal geometric nature with these fundamental mathematical constants that nature seems to use, like we, we find the the phi ratio, for instance, 1.618, almost everywhere in nature, you know, the, the relationship uh, ratio between uh, the, the 
top part of your finger to the second part of your finger and the second part to the third part. And, you know, your hand, uh, your finger to, relative to your hand and your hand relative to your forearm and your arms relative to your body. All these, you know, um, are, well, you know, approximate fire ratios. Uh, you can see it in tree branches and in the roots of trees and the flowers. Uh, it's more appropriately called the Fibonacci series, which is a, a series that produces this ratio approximating closer and closer uh, towards infinity, the 1.618 dot, 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 that goes on to infinity. And so I started to wonder if that was actually uh, valid at, 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 um, at the universal level. So, for instance, if, if you took... The universe size, as we see it, and then if you took uh, quasars, they're ginormous star-like objects we see in the universe, and then if we took galaxies and galactic centers and and uh, large stars and and then uh, you know smaller stars and then um, uh, pulsars and qua and so on, and, and we and we plot it on the on the scale. I, I was uh, wondering if they if they would line up, if things would organize, would show evidence of organization. That it wasn't just random, um, you know, uh, the way the uh, universe was dividing. It would show that space itself has structure. It would show that space divides in very specific ratios. And so I started to write these scaling laws, um, as I said, with Dr. Roucher. And uh, as we did, it was just remarkable. The first one we did was a, the scaling of the frequency of objects or the energy levels of objects and their radius. And going from universal size, which is enormously big, all the way down to the Planck's distance, which is 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, which is extremely small, like billions of times smaller than an atom. And we plotted all the objects we could find in between those two sides, um, you know, uh, quasars, galaxies, pulsars, and all this stuff. And it all started to line up beautifully. And then when I started to, uh, all the way down to the subatomic particle, and then when I started to measure on the graph the data points, the the ratios of relationship between the data points, it was all very close approximations to the phi ratio again. And so that told me right there that the, the concept had some validity. The concept had some uh, correctness to it, that, you know, there was evidence that the universe tends to organize to a very specific ratio, to a very specific relationship, that there is uh, some order in our universe, from universal size, from extremely big, all the way down to extremely, extremely small. And uh, that told me there was, there was some investigation that has to be done to, to explore what would be the geometry that would produce all this, how does this uh, all coalesce into such an organized system. You spent many years sharing this with the scientific community who were certainly restricted by their own ideas during which you discussed universal galactic 
organization. And of course, traveling to the, the Planket scale, presenting this entire concept of precise organization. Nevertheless, I'm sure that the scientists returned and perhaps accepted that working model. But at the end of the day, what are the boundaries? What are these infinities? Could I perhaps put it to you that this infinity is not really a terminology that applies in, in any of this? Certainly, you know, because people look at this world and this word of infinities from so many angles, it really is the case that the universe that we know does not indeed have any infinities because although you can look at it in a linear fashion it's almost so profound that it all overlaps and expands and contracts and that ultimately there are no boundaries at the end of the day would that be a good definition well, you know, it's it, uh, this uh, what you're expressing there is the is this fundamental difficulty we have in physics um, and in society as a whole in uh, identifying the relationship between finite system and infinity, um, and and this is a big chasm. That's that's a big problem um, in in physics. Um, the you know, the reaction that um, physicists have when they see the scaling line, in some cases for physicists that are honest, uh, it's quite, uh, you know, their jaw hits the ground. They go, oh, wow, you know, they, that's very telling, that's very important, uh, and so on. But most of them, many of them, just dismisses it as a coincidence, uh, which, you know, I can't imagine that would be coincidental that almost all the objects in the universe fall on a linear progression that way. Uh, but the um, the other thing is that um, you know it, it's um, it's so revolutionary in physics uh, to think as uh, with uh, such holistically. It's extremely difficult for physicists to follow this because in general physicists are very Specialized, and that's the case in in most of the educational systems, uh, into very specific way, uh, specific problems that they're working on, or specific, you know, it's either uh, in the uh, macro world with Einstein field equation and all this, or in the micro world with quantum theory, and so and so to present them with something that's all you know, so um, you know, holistic and and overarching, it, first of all, it, it's very difficult for them to go there. Uh, as well, you know, it, it, uh, it violates ideas that are very established in physics. That is, that the, the quantum world of the atom and the subatomic particles and all this is not related to the macro world of, you know, planets and stars and galaxies and all this, and that the two shouldn't be in the same theory, that they... They don't work together, and the reason really that they don't work together is that Einstein's field equation, which deals with the large stuff, predicts 
um, you know, continuance towards infinity, towards singularity, and the quantum world, which deals with the atom and the subatomic particles and all this, uh, those mathematics predict finite linear boundaries. And so the two don't agree. And this has been the chasm in physics uh, that, that's produced this uh, separation. And, and Einstein didn't think, and, and others didn't think that was correct, because obviously big things are made out of small things. So obviously there must be a relationship, there must be a continuum between each other, and Einstein, for one, thought there, was, there must be some more fundamental mechanics uh, at the base of creation, that, uh, a theory that could unify the two, and thus the concept of a unified field theory. And when I looked at it, uh, I came to a very different conclusion, meaning that from these first experiences when I was young, and when I learned about dimensions when I was young, which we were talking about a little bit yesterday, I realized that maybe if space is what's producing all the material world and just dividing the space from infinitely big to infinitely small, and every time it divides, it makes a boundary that we see as a universe or, or a, a star or a quasar or, or an atom or a subatomic particle and so on, uh, from infinitely big to infinitely small, I realized that maybe, just maybe, uh, each point can be divided to infinity. Like, we keep building larger and larger accelerators, get smaller and smaller and smaller particles. You know, there's no reason that we could, could uh, not to conclude that you can continue to divide to infinity. And so I started to think, and since each division has mass, I started to think maybe we're dealing with uh, different scale um, black holes, you know, loosely talking. Uh, I like to think of it as black holes, W-H-O-L-E. Uh, and, 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 um, but in the context of a point of infinite density, and I started to treat the atom that way as a mini black hole, I started to analyze it that way, and that led to... That led to um, uh, physics paper that that describes the atom as a mini black hole with this infinite possibility. But really, to answer your question fully, I would have to say that in that the the only tools that I know that we have that I think are very crucial and that have been they are becoming more popular, but have been ignored a lot in the in the physics community in the last century is in um, you know, as in holographic systems and fractal structures. And I think there's a very, very great gift in those, in those tools uh, in being able to relate finite systems to infinite curvature. And because in a fractal structure, you have these boundary conditions that are created as a result of an infinite amount of iteration of a system. And so you have this relationship between an infinite amount of information being embedded inside what appears to be a finite boundary. And so I like, you know, my, my work actually suggests that there is finite boundaries or only apparent finite boundaries, that they all contain infinities within them, all contain little singularities at their center. 
There are many areas of crossover in my world, talking to the profound scientists, profound leaders, and this in multiple ways, I guess, is connected to our conversation yesterday from exploring earlier days, that as with us all, scientists as well are conditioned to look for whole solutions, but not to look outside of that box, as many refer to, including, of course, theologians. You move on to creating models in building a stage-by-stage platform, looking at this linear form, but in a static way in creating this strategy, a build-by-build stage uh, theory, prior to talking to gyroscopic principles, Coriolis effect, spin and energy, etc. In accomplishing that, how do they begin to change their mindsets? Did they, or is it still difficult to break down, to break through that conditioning? I refer to, as the establishment myself, one that's reluctant to explore further beyond that boundary, as it were, that they can only comfortably explain. Right. Uh, yeah, it's still very difficult. And, you know, you must understand it's, it, it's understandable uh, in some ways. Um, for instance, the latest paper I published, it's called The Four Child Proton. Uh, Carl Schwarzschild was the, the physicist that did the first solution to Einstein's field equation, which predicted, predicted black holes. And, um, and so I, I'm discussing the proton, which is the nuclei of an atom, as a mini black hole. And, you know, and, and I'm extrapolating and using classical and semi-classical equations, very clear, simple equations, uh, you know, what a black hole atom would look like, uh, what would, what would be its, uh, decay, what would be its interaction time, what would be its magnetic moment and all this. And it all comes out right. And, and here I haven't used any of quantum theory. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm describing the atom completely classically, which Einstein himself believed was possible. And um, and I'm getting some of the right answers, at least. And, you know, and as a result, I am uni- unifying the field because I'm treating the atom as a classical body instead of a quantum body. You, have, you must understand, I'm going against, although that paper won an award uh, in its first presentation to a physics conference, uh, to a multidisciplinary conference that has a fairly decent physics section, uh, and I, you know, uh, I, I, but, but you have almost a hundred and some years of quantum theorists out there. Um, you know, quantum theory is extremely popular. Uh, most uh, students in physics go into quantum theory. It's exciting. It's, got, it's very dynamic. There's string theory as well attached to it and all this stuff. They get to play with accelerators that cost billions and billions of dollars to build and all this. So, you know, it's a whole industry. It's a whole 
way of thinking, and, and all of a sudden, this simple paper uh, comes out, 16 equations of classical mechanics that describe things that quantum theory cannot describe. For instance, the so-called anomalous moment, uh, 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 magnetic moment of the atom, which is, you know, is called anomalous in quantum physics because there's no source for it. The quantum theory doesn't explain where the magnetic field of the atom comes from, and as a result, cannot explain really where electricity comes from. Uh, and so this, uh, but in this uh, rendering, which is completely classical, then you start to understand, yes, why, you know, you would have a magnetic field, you're dealing with, um, you know, mini black holes that produces very large magnetic fields and all this stuff. And, and so, uh, and so now, you know, I'm, you know, a paper like this is flying in the face of what is being accepted for almost, uh, you know, 100 years <laughs> is very established and so on. And so the initial reaction, typically, of physicists is of great anger, uh, dismissal right away. Um, you know, I, I get called names. I had people scream at me. I mean, I, I even have a whole website, website out there put up by you know, uh, enthusiastic uh, physicists that, uh, you know, are attempting to debunk this and they're very upset about it. So there is a lot of, uh, but I think at at the end it's all very positive. It means that there's a discussion and it means that people are paying attention. And at the end of the day, the math is the math and it adds up. Uh, And and it's, um, it's a simple solution. It's and, and certainly what I've written so far is a first-level approximation, so it means much more work. But, you know, in almost 30 years of string theory, attempting to unify the field, uh, it still hasn't been done. It's received millions and millions, if not billions of dollars of support. Uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of physicists have been working on it. They're, they're working in, you know, 248 dimensions of Calabiel and all this very complex math. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, there is um, concept, um, uh, you know, Alchem's razor that says that, uh, you know, a simple, uh, a simple approach that, uh, that gives correct answers is most likely the correct one. And, so it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time for people to, uh, you know, it, to accept that maybe, just maybe, a hundred years ago, when we just couldn't understand what the atom was, uh, when black holes at the time were tough, you know, they were predicted by Einstein field equations, but it was very, very new, and it was tough to be part of the equations that were irrelevant, that were probably had no reality to it, had no physicality to it, that black holes probably don't exist, that they would never be found and all this, to uh, now in modern times having seen black holes in our universe, at least detected them with, uh, you know, with our telescopes and so on, uh, and with the data we get, uh, now it's a different story. And so... Maybe, just maybe, you know, a hundred years ago, when we looked at the atom and we didn't know all this about black holes, 
we took a, a turn towards a very esoteric approach to the material world where, we, where physicists pretty well let go of some of the fundamental concepts of physics, uh, let go of ideas of mechanics, uh, let go of ideas of, of uh, in some ways, conservation uh, uh, of energy and so on. And, and just said, we're, we're going to build this model, you know, in a way that it cannot be visualized. It cannot be, you know, mapped out uh, uh, in terms of, like, top, its topology, how it actually works. But if we write these equations this way, using this set of, uh, you know, axioms, these sets of fundamental assumptions, then we get the kind of the right answer for the electron cloud's orbit and for the energy levels and all this, and we're just going to go with this and just say that you cannot visualize an atom. And, you know, this is really what Einstein disagreed with, and, and I think he was right. I, I, I don't believe that the, that the atom is, is such a strange animal that it, can, that it has no mechanical, real mechanical function in all this. It's just that we're dealing with little singularities, little uh, points of infinite potential, infinite density, and that, you know, makes it very exotic, but not non-classical, not non-mechanical. And, um, you know, so uh, to reverse that, to reverse that thinking, to, to say, no, actually, it's like a little solar system or a little galaxy, you know, is more accurate way of thinking of it, you know, or a little universe in there, and you can actually think of things actually spinning for real and, and, uh, and orbiting for real and all this is a very difficult thing for uh, quantum physicists out there to accept. Let me respond to that, if I may, um, perhaps looking at some historical facts and also uh, philosophy. And you have profoundly talked to this, as with the ancient civilizations, and of course, also with reference to the pyramids built uh, during the time of these earlier civilizations. You speak of the precise symmetry, which for me is well-placed in your theories, especially after examining spin, Coriolis, um, etc. The 64th rule, for example. And can we discuss those people, therefore, back in those ancient civilizations during this time, who, to my mind, really knew about the special world and were probably in the special world, and the empowerment qualities that they certainly have or had and and we no doubt have as human beings that energy that we possess Nassim that was so profound that in my research in studying the pyramids and of course you already know that having spent my childhood up around Stonehenge, it's of particular interest to me. What was it then that led to the creation, and I call it creation rather than, than building, of these amazing structures? 
Could I put it to you that they were not created by necessarily the human beings that we understand, but supported by some far higher force? Because the symmetry of these objects, and as you talk to the building of a structure that is within a quarter of an inch at the top in relation to its foundation in your notes, there has to be a, a divine force behind that. And that suggests to me that it's questionable as to whether people then were capable of building these structures on their own. Yes. Well, you know, when I was thinking about this, uh, the, you know, the, the singularity at the center of all things uh, uh, early on, it became clear to me that when I was studying a lot of ancient civilizations, a lot of them talk in those terms, you know. It was, there was a direct relationship between, um, you know, what I was discovering in physics and, you know, so many ancient traditions talking about the Bindu point, for instance, uh, you know, uh, at the center of everything, or, um, you know, that the, 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 the connection to God is at the center of, of everything, that God is everywhere, and that, you know, um, you know that that point of infinite density that uh, was uh, described in many different ways in different uh, ancient civilizations and uh, and ancient traditions, like the Kabbalistic tradition, for instance, and and um, you know uh, some of the traditions that you find in the Mayan country and the Inca country and. Uh, and in the Egyptian uh, mythology and so on. And uh, as I studied more and more these cultures, like you said, I started to, you know, make calculations and, uh, uh, you know, on some of the structures they, they, they erected in, in various places in the world. And I found very amazing correlations between... Uh, you know, cultures that were separated by a world that were not supposed to be in contact with each other and that were building very similar geometric structures that were highly accurate. As you say, you know, when people discuss pyramid, they say, oh, well, they could have moved the block this way, the block this way. You know, it's not, it's, it's a cumulative effect. It's not just one problem like uh, the weight of the block or the amount of the block, but but it's the, the precision at which the blocks were, were placed, uh, the precision of the orientation of the whole building to very specific stars alignment and, and field alignments and so on. I mean, it's amazing. It's remarkable. And when you look at the data, and if you're honest, you know, uh, if you're doing an analysis of the data, there is no way. Any engineering company on this planet at this time could reproduce such amazing uh, engineering feats, uh, such as the Grand Pyramid at Giza. I mean, it doesn't matter if you give all the money in the world to uh, the best engineering companies in the world. They wouldn't be. We don't have the technology today to reproduce such an, uh, uh, an awesome building. 
uh, like you said, you know, the apex of the Grand Pyramid at Giza is a quarter of an inch off the base, which is 13 acres. I mean, to nail that, having placed 2,300,000 stones, is, uh, is unconceivable. And, and, and that's after the pyramid has gone through all these ages of earthquakes and this, you know, there was a whole layer that was removed from the pyramid. It might have been absolutely perfect when it was um, uh, brand spanking new. And, uh, you know, so this is unconceivable. Uh, it, it, it's, I think there is very, very, very important wisdom there. And, uh, and when you study all these uh, civilizations, there is a correlating factor that you cannot miss. Uh, although, <laughs> remarkably, it seems to have been missed. Uh, and that is that all of these uh, civilizations and traditions, none of them uh, claim to have come up with this information themselves. They, do, they don't claim to have bid these buildings themselves. They all say that divine beings, as, as you may call them, uh, came from the stars, uh, you know, in different ways, uh, but uh, often pointing at similar constellation all around the world, um, you know, and came to the earth and had relationships with uh, the beings of the earth and taught them about mathematics, about engineering, about language, and everything they know uh, came from these relationships with these advanced beings. And certainly when you look at the data, and, you know, there's thousands and thousands of examples, but... Like one of the examples is, for instance, in Egypt, where all of a sudden a civilization that literally were mostly nomads and, and people living in caves and in, um, in the middle of the desert are credited today in archaeology for having built these amazing temples and these amazing buildings with high level of accuracy, like out of nowhere, um, with no evidence of learning curve or anything. And so what we're talking about here is that they may have been a very advanced civilization that had visited our planet. And I understand that this, for some people, may sound extremely radical. I assure you that there is some very strong evidence for this. And it's getting stronger, for instance. You know, just recently, one of those bizarre skulls that has been found in uh, Mexico and South America was finally uh, analyzed to look for DNA, and, and part of the base pair DNA that were found there are not human. They're not anything we find on our planet. And, um, and so, you know, there's, there's evidence for this, but basically that they left us very, very, very crucial sets of information for our evolution. And it's embedded in all these ancient traditions all around the, the world. And uh, I started to get so fascinated with this. I was studying physics, and at the same time, I was studying these ancient civilizations. And all the pieces of the puzzle started to fall together in such a beautiful way uh, that, uh, you know, I'm convinced that the information that was left by these ancient civilizations is the information necessary to unify the field and actually to reach levels of physics of advancements that are much beyond 
where we're at today, not only in terms of theory and philosophy, but in terms of technology as well. Maybe giving us the key to the technology that was used then to produce these amazing buildings to be able to lift enormous uh, masses, enormous rocks that even today our largest land train cannot build, uh, lift in some cases, and so, uh, and so on. So, so I think there's a, a very amazing mystery there, a very amazing correlation with advanced physics, and the two needs to be put together. This is, of course, flies against what I refer back to as the establishment. You know, the most amazing individuals and scientists like uh, the Dr. Irving Dudix and Professor Bill Tillers who have appeared on the program and have clearly been crushed. Uh, so, like so many uh, of the of their contemporaries during their lives because they have traveled against the grain as it were and yet there is so much evidence in the most joyous of ways that we can only go so far as human beings and what interests me from your last comments is that you mentioned technology but I don't think it's the technology that we understand as human beings today, but a technology brought to us in a higher state of consciousness. But I guess it's a question of timing as to when that technology will avail itself, which I certainly suspect will very quickly during a chaotic period in our world. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Nassim? Yeah, I think we're, we're on the cusp of this technology being revealed to the world, coming... I mean, I like to think of it as coming back to the world, that there's evidence that that technology was on our planet before, and that actually these uh, beings from the stars give some of this technology to, the, to humans early on, uh, and then removed it because... Uh, you know, we needed to learn very specific lessons before we had access to such power. However, uh, yeah, I think we're on the cusp of this very big transformation. And, and you know, uh, when you're on that transformation stage, when you're on that cusp, uh, it's typical that people that are already moving into the next level of understanding get crushed by the earlier level of understanding that's not completely dissolved yet or, or not dissolved at all. And, and so it's extremely difficult to get through. But it's, it's an amazing thing that when you look at the data from these people that are considered, you know, uh, irrational and, and mavericks and all this, actually they're the rational ones. I mean, they're basically taking data and saying, okay, we cannot explain this the way we've been explaining it for the last, you know, century. We cannot, you know, continue to say, oh, yeah, it, it was 100,000 slaves pulling on vine ropes. When, when we look at the data, it actually doesn't add up. You cannot do it that way. Uh, and so it's got to be something else and all this. And so actually those are the people that are, are the rational ones. They're the people that are actually looking at data, uh, at, at face value without preconceived ideas of 
what it should be and, and, and what it should mean. And they are coming to conclusions that, you know, are the are straight result and scientific approach to, um, to the data, to what's out there. And so, you know, it's, uh, it's a very uh, difficult time at the same time as it's, uh, I think, a time of great transformation and great promise for humanity. Uh, but I, uh, and at the same time, uh, I think that we have a, a limited amount of time to get the job done. That uh, there's, uh, you know, changes that are occurring in our environment. There's changes that are occurring in the environment of the solar system that are occurring in the environment in which we are inside the galaxy, and that you know there's more and more evidence of that um, occurring. Uh, for instance. NASA in the last year and a half has this half has discovered that that uh, you know we are moving into what appears to be a denser magnetic field, a, a cloud inside our galaxy that's compressing our heliosphere, and so on. And and so we, I think there's changes that are occurring. I think these beings from ancient time left us even calendars, uh, you know, giving us very specific timing of when these changes were going to occur. And so I think there's a little bit of a race against the clock here to transform, to understand these new uh, levels of knowledge, to apply them to technology, and to completely transform our world into a world of uh, sustainability to thrive instead of a world that uh, is actually running down. You adopt the word transformation before the world will clearly uh, change because of a higher state of awareness perhaps a higher responsibility however you wish to state that that is complemented by those traditions and that expertise of ancient civilizations you know armed with that technology that we cannot even explain today Returning, however, can we talk to each of us as being our own universe or being the center of the universe, which, of course, is raised with uh, Professor Tiller, who suggested that as human beings, we wear a bodysuit. And as such, when we reach a point of real consciousness, real awareness about uh, Mother Earth, and nature, we have the ability to change those around us, which I'm guessing will complement any other action or infiltration that we may find, but also encourage the involvement of those amazing forces during those ancient civilizations to return to help us to correct the chaos that we have in our world today. Is that how you would describe the capability of the energy that we have now as human beings? Well, you know, as you said, uh, you know, if we live in a fractal universe, so from infinitely small to infinitely big, then everything in such a universe is the center. Um, and I mean that literally. So that means that you could think of yourself as the center of a universe. I'm, 
you know, you are not the center of this universe because we know approximately where that is. But if that, if this universe is embedded in a larger one and that one in a larger one and that one and so on to infinity, there's actually a universe out there that's enormous, that's ginormous, that you are the actual geometric center of. And, you know, and then that universe, if you can, you know, um, if you can, uh, you know, experience that, visualize that, then that universe is is the center of an even larger one, and so on and so on. So, so that each point in the universe is the center of the universe, and that's why each, you know, although we're all human, we all have a very specific perspective on the world, on reality. We all are independent in some ways uh, because we observe the universe from our own very specific perspective, our own very specific center, which is not the same center of any other center. And uh, so, so, but the important thing to remember there is that, you know, you are the center of the universe, but so is everybody else. So is everything else. It's an important part not to forget. And it's all embedded in this amazing fractal structure of creation of the vacuum and in in that structure, and, and from the calculation I did in the sword child proton, showing that each proton has all the information of all of the universe in each proton, showing that they're all connected. Um, you know, inside that singularity that centers you, within that singularity is all the information of all other singularities in all of the universe. So from that perspective... You possess all knowledge. Everything is available to you. You can tap into any point, uh, any question, any, any answer you need is present within yourself. It's a question of accessing it. And, you know, and that starts to explain all sorts of esoteric things like you know, remote viewing, uh, you know, which has been verified, you know, in very good double-blind studies and so on, and, 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 you know, entanglement and all these things starts to make sense all of a sudden. And so what I'm saying here is that I think what we're experiencing at this moment is that the world as a whole, our society as a whole, is going through what I like to think of, uh, figuratively speaking, an event horizon, you know, going through uh, a boundary condition where we're going to uh, go deeper within ourselves and actually access deeper levels of information available to us to all, through all this interconnectivity of all points. And, and as we access deeper levels of information within ourselves, we obviously understand the universe better and we can apply that outside ourselves into technology so that the technology we have matches that new level of consciousness. And that technology is, I mean, that new level of consciousness is remarkable, and the technology that comes with it is really amazing. Uh, and, and will literally, most likely, bring us to the stars. The hitch there, the, the difficulty there, the crux there, is that we have to be able to get to that level early enough 
so that our society does not self-destruct before that with the older uh, level of consciousness that doesn't quite have the awareness of the impact of uh, everything you do on all other things. And without that connectivity, without that understanding that everything is affected by everything else, uh, you know, you think that it's all separate and that you can do this little mess over here and it's not going to mess this up. Uh, and then, when, you know, by the time you realize that all this stuff is connected, it can be too late and your society may not make it. So, uh, you know, it's a very important moment. It's very delicate. If, Nassim, we are going to receive that higher intellectual value in terms of technology, from those that came before us, you know, many thousands of years ago, then it is quite assured that it will come through the power of people that are inspired and conscious and quite possibly at that stage in community. Given that we are coming quickly to changing times, what will it take as a catalyst for people to come together so strongly and so succinctly, so much in unity, as it were, that the information possessed by ancient civilizations will divinely come our way? Um, I think, a very good question, I, I think that there's many different catalysts. Uh, and sadly, some of the catalysts are, are you know, um, disasters. You know, uh, typically when there's large uh, difficulties, when there's lots of dis disasters, people are stripped from all of their belongings and, and you know, in some cases, uh, some of their family members and all this. So in other words, and sorry to interrupt, you would concur that in order to move forward into another dimension, that we talk about, we actually have to literally, as a society, lose everything in order to gain everything. Well, uh, I think that the severity of how much we have to lose before we move on to the next level is going to be directly related to our capacity um, to uh, transcend individually. Like how many, you know, our society, uh, how much, uh, difficulty we encounter is going to be directly related to how quickly we can accept the changes, how quickly society can incorporate these changes into the way we do things to transform it. And, and so there lies our responsibility. Uh, there lies our, you know, um, you know, our responsibility to each other is like, how quickly can I make that transformation in my own life? And, in, in my daily life, in, in my consciousness right now, because if I do it, uh, I'm helping. Uh, and, and anybody that does it around me is helping. And, and, and more and more people make that transformation in their own life, in their daily life. Uh, you know, more that transformation is felt by the whole and more the, you know, the faster the society can change, and less difficulties we'll have to experience in order to make that change because we'll be moving with the changes instead of resisting them. 
so I think it's directly related. And, uh, and I think there's catalysts as well that are positive catalysts, meaning some of these technologies that are emerging now are technologies that are not just gizmos to do, just produce energy or do uh, all sorts of things, but actually have an impact on your consciousness, have an impact on your health, has an impact on your energy levels and all this positive impacts. And so I think there's going to be some of these catalysts as well, very positive catalysts that are emerging right now. Well, that brings our program to an end. Uh, Nassim, it's uh, been a great pleasure, uh, enormous pleasure to share this time with you. I look forward to our future programs and I wish you well with your upcoming trip to Europe. And thank you again um, for sharing your life and work with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure, and uh, I really appreciate it. So um, until next time. And to our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program with Nassim Haramein. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at the official website, davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.